You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit SojournMontrose.com. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And that was not purposeful in any way that it's all ones. But, um, <laughs> but here's what we're going to do, right? Every time that we walk through a portion of narrative, it's a little difficult um, in, in trying to communicate sort of, again, the significance of what it is that's, that's taking place here in Mark chapter 11. But I'm going to make it sort of as, as, as quick and as helpful as possible. So let's just read these first three verses together, and we'll kind of park there for a little bit. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, there's several things just right off the bat. If we have sort of have some familiarity with Scripture, and we know sort of a bit about the person and the work of Jesus, that, that maybe sticks out to us, right? And that we see some attributes of Jesus on display here, that for those of us who know Him as God, would say those are symbols of His Godness right? Just as a, as a quick example, right? We see Jesus's foreknowledge, right? He tells, he tells these two unnamed disciples, look, go into this village and here's what you're going to find. It's not a question of if, this is what you will, you will find, right? Then we see Jesus's sovereignty on display when he says, look, they're going to ask you. They're going to ask you what you're doing, why you are taking this thing that does not belong to you. And yet, when you respond to them that the Lord needs it, they'll, they'll give it to you, right? We see, we see the fact that he actually just takes upon himself the name of Lord, that Jesus is speaking here, right? That's why if it's in red letters in some of your Bibles that Jesus is speaking here and he says, the Lord, capital L, has need of it. Now, although we could draw from that, right, from our sort of bank of, of Bible knowledge if we, were, if, we, if we were raised in the church, right? What I don't want us to do is miss what it is that's, that's taking place in terms of, of, of the context here. Because here's, here's what Jesus is, is actually doing. And I think if you've been with us for a little bit, you know that we've kind of popped in to this, this gospel account from Mark several times over the past couple of months, Right? And so we've kind, of, we've kind of seen these different moments, these little snapshots of Jesus' life from the gospel account in Mark. And maybe, it, you know, if you were paying attention, which hopefully some of us were. I don't blame you if you weren't, though. Um, but if you were paying attention, what you, what you prob- probably have noticed is that Jesus, all throughout those different accounts, has done sort of some miraculous things. And yet at the end of doing those, he's said something that comes across quite weird. In that he'll, like, he'll, he'll heal a blind man, and that blind man will see. Or he will lift a leper up off the ground, and the scales that were once on them are now gone, and they're clean. Or he'll, he'll go to someone who is possessed by a demon, and he will say, it's time for you to leave, and they'll obey him. And you have these miraculous moments, right? And yet at the end of each of those moments, rather than capu- capitalizing on a moment that would probably serve to enhance his popularity. What does he say? 
He says, he says, go and tell no one. Go and tell no one. Even that moment, right, when he's standing before his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, for the first time, sort of the light bulb turns on and he says, you are the Christ. Jesus still says, hey, hold on a minute. Well, this is the moment. This is the moment in Jesus' life and ministry where he sort of uncorks that, that, that which, which was previously there. It's no longer go and tell no one. It's now, okay, not only have you guys told me who I am, not only have you spoken truth in that sense, but now I'm going to affirm it. And I'm going to affirm it by doing some things and saying some things that are not only just sort of um, accidentally sovereign and good, but I'm going to do something that is incredibly and entirely significant in terms of linking myself to the position that is rightfully mine. So what we see here in Mark chapter 11 is Jesus taking upon himself for the first time in, in this gospel account of Mark, his kingship, his position as king. Now some of us might be asking ourselves, like, what's so kingly about being able to commandeer a donkey from a backwater town outside of Jerusalem? Right? I mean, it's a fair question to ask. I mean, Jack Bauer did that like on every episode of 24, just with Suburbans and like in Russia somewhere, right? So what's the big deal here? I mean, basically just some people got bowled over for their property. Someone got taken advantage of. That happens all the time. Maybe somebody was so captivated by the illusion that Jesus is Lord that they were just like, yeah, sure, take it. Well, look, Jesus is not only acting in a way that shows kingliness by saying that he is the Lord and that they owe him the use of their donkey. Although he exerts the authority that is suggestive of kingship here, he is primarily and purposefully linking himself to the prophecies of old. And so if you know the Bible uh, a little bit, then there's a, a collection of books that were written before Jesus came and then there's some that were written after, right? And in those that were written before, um, there were a lot of them that spoke about this one who would come. And so I'm going to turn to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And I'm just going to um, read that one simple verse. Now, the, remember, this is written approximately 500 years before Jesus ever walks the earth. And this is what Zechariah 9, 9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what Jesus is doing here, not only in telling his disciples to go commandeer a donkey, but in, but in saying that the Lord is in need of it, is he is linking himself. He is saying, this person that would come in Zechariah 9.9, I am he. I am this king. I am this king who comes bearing righteousness and salvation. That's, that is me. So, this is Jesus' going public moment. This is Jesus finally stepping into the role that so many people around him had sort of whispered about at times. I said, is this, is this him? Is that, is it, 
is this the, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Is this, is this that guy? Jesus, Jesus steps into that in this moment. And he says, yes, yes, absolutely, that is me. He's no longer shrouding himself in mystery to be mistaken for a prophet. Now he's to be known as him of whom the prophets themselves spoke. So here's this, there's this great moment right, where Jesus just steps in, he takes upon himself that position as king for the first time. Now you would think, right, you would think that in a moment right, like that, like when a king is crowned, that would be fairly significant, like fairly celebratory, right? I mean, think of, think of any coronation. Come on. Like, you know that we pay undue attention to, like, the royal family in, in the UK. Right? Anytime one of them moves, it's, like, picture-worthy and tabloid-worthy. But, like, any time, right, that we've seen a coronation, we, we know that it's sort of this grand and glorious moment. It's over the top, right? All of the... All of the clothes are, are of the finest silk and garment, right? All, all of the food is in, inordinately weird and expensive, right? All of the, the champagne and the wine and, and the tapestry and the, I mean, it's an over-the-top event. And so you would think, you would think that in this moment where Jesus is not only claiming to be the king, but actually claiming to be the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, that this moment would be the moment in which Jesus really sort of shone forth in all of his glory, right? Like where he would step up to his throne and take hold of it and rule. And yet, what is it that Mark 11 tells us happens next? Verse 4 says, And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, just like Jesus said. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And so here's this great moment, right? Again, this great moment, Jesus taking upon himself kingship. although he is clearly worthy of the most elaborate, fantastical reception that humankind could provide because of his position, his person is intimately revealed in this moment, right? So here's what's happening. There's a, a really interesting, seeming dichotomy, seeming paradox taking place, right? In that Jesus is coming as a king, but he's not being treated like one. Right, like last week, we talked a lot about how Jesus, it, there was this weird paradox between his godness and his humanity, right? And that he experienced both of those in equal measure in such a way that he could be empathetic with us and yet also rule over that which dominates us. Well, this is another moment in which we just have something weird happening where the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, it, rather than jumping onto a war horse, is going to jump onto a colt the foal of a donkey. And so we see two things at play here, both the position of Jesus as king and the person of Jesus as humble, right? So if we go back to, if we go back to Zechariah 9.9, it starts to come a little bit alive for us, doesn't it? It's not just some weird verse in the Old Testament. It's that Jesus is being revealed as a king, but as a humble king, right? What does it say? 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So there's his position, right? Jesus is king. That position belongs to him. But this is his person. Righteous. Having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. How strange and how dichotomous, right? I mean, I think often because we've maybe been to like an Easter passion play at some point um, that we think that this moment um, in Jesus' ministry, this entrance into to Jerusalem was some really majestic moment. And, and while we can kind of look back at it now and say, yes, it is a majestic moment. This is what we know what's sort of happening underneath the surface. What's happening on the surface is utterly ridiculous. I mean, think about it, right? So admittedly, the crowds were probably great and the chants were probably loud. But the truth is that a homeless carpenter on the foal of a donkey with his disciples' outer garments as a saddle waddled into Jerusalem with a bunch of broke Galileans. That's what happened at the triumphal entry of Christ. And what's really weird is if, if you think of that, and when I, when I say it was ridiculous, I don't, I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean that, that the people of that time probably looked at that and said, what is this? Because remember, this is, this is Jerusalem, okay? This is a, a, a city of cities, right? Honored, respected, well-known. It's also now a Roman province, right? So you know, like they know what, what it looks like for a king to march in and triumph. In fact, in, in Roman culture, the, there was no triumph march unless you marched in having conquered 5,000 or more people. And what they would typically do at those triumph marches is they, they would put that king or that general right up front in the middle of a golden chariot with, with splendid armor and a giant horse and his hordes of soldiers following behind him and all of the slaves that he had conquered and now brought into this city, Right? to be heralded, to be celebrated. And then, of course, the, the great celebrations at the Colosseums, right? Where those who were conquered were forced to do all kinds of horrid things while people celebrated the victory of their king because he had conquered. This was a triumph of their day. And yet here comes Jesus, a man who not only claims to be a king, but who claims to be the king, and he is waltzing into Jerusalem on not, not even a donkey, but the foal of a donkey, which if you've ever seen like a baby donkey walk, not glorious. He's riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. He doesn't even have a saddle. So what his disciples are doing is they're taking off their outer garments, right? And they're putting it on this beast of burden for this king of kings and lord of lords to sit on. The king of all kings coming in this inglorious fashion, coming in humility, right? So let's not miss what it is that Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 11. Because it's incredible. It's incredible that in the same moment, Jesus can tell the whole world who he is by his choice of a donkey. And at the same time, proclaim exactly what he was like. So he is the king. But what is he like? 
This is the same Jesus that when he crossed the Sea of Galilee, he crossed in a borrowed boat. And that when he was buried, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. You see, this Jesus, this king, is not like any other king that had come before. And in fact, I think what we often do, again, in this account, we read this and we look at the people who are following him and we say, they got it. Like they understood, right? What do these next verses say? It says in verse 8, Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Right? And again, we, we sort of think that, that this is a great moment, right? Where people understand what's happening. The light bulb has clicked for everyone and they're, they're on board. And yet the reality is if we understand what it is that they're saying, it's a super ironic moment. It's not only ironic in that Jesus, King of Kings, comes in such an unkingly fashion. It's also ironic in that the people who he's come for don't recognize him as a king. Let's just break down what they say, right? So they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. This is so weird. (laughs) So they yell Hosanna, right? Hosanna is a simple word. All it means is save we pray that's it that's pretty good like first word on it good job save we pray and then they say blessed is the uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord now we would think that they were singing that about jesus right and yet what what we can know just based on on history and and scripture is that really all that is is the traditional greeting at the gate of jerusalem for any pilgrim who would come to worship there and essentially what it, all it means is that the pilgrim who comes into the city of God is blessed in God's name because the city is where the temple dwells and the temple is where God dwells. So blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is still not, nothing striking in terms of what they've had to say. And then they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And if any statement that they could have made could better illustrate the fact that they don't get it, it would be this one. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now here's the thing. If we remember, right, all, what Jesus preached all throughout his ministry, right? So he's, he's been ministering for about three years now. He's, he's probably gathered somewhat of a crowd. But what has he said time and time again? Repent, believe the gospel. What, the kingdom of your father David is at hand? Or was it... the the kingdom of God is at hand. Oh, well, it was the latter, right? Like Jesus came preaching, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. And here, these people who are supposedly affirming his lordship say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They don't get it. Because the kingdom of their father David is actually God's kingdom, and the king is here. It's not coming. It's among them. It's among them in this moment. So it shows to us that these people, that these, that these people who are walking triumphantly with Jesus into the city of Jerusalem still don't quite get it. 
They're literally, and that's what makes this moment so ironic. They are literally shouting, save us, we pray, in the presence of their Savior without even recognizing him. They're more concerned with the kingdom than with him who will see the kingdom established. They've become so self-involved that it's more about David and their lineage than about the God who spoke to David and his forefathers saying, you will be my people and I will be your God. And then this is what all of this glorious moment comes to in terms of a conclusion, right? What does verse 11 say? And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Like, that's it. That's the end of the story. That in this, like, so there's this glorious moment, right, where Jesus, I don't know if it's just like a mob mentality, but people hop on, right, they're excited, they're shouting these things, praises to God, right? And then he arrives at the temple, takes a look around, and it's like, cool. <laughs> and just leaves. Like, that's it. That's the conclusion of this triumphal entry story. I mentioned last week that we saw this great seeming paradox between Jesus' godness and his humanness. Today we see the great seeming paradox between Jesus' all-powerful position and his all-humble person. We've never seen a king like this king. We've never seen a king with this much power and simultaneously this humble, this willing to engage in our lives, this willing to be found without the material trappings of kingship that our world would say is necessary in order to have a kingship. So the kingdom of God is established by a humble king. Right? Is he foreknowing? Is he sovereign? Is he powerful? Can he say, go into this town and this is what you're going to find and when you're met with opposition, speak my name and it will crumble? Yes, absolutely. Because Jesus' position is king. But can you come to him as you are? If all you have is the outer garments of your robe to make a saddle, is that enough? If all you have are broken words that maybe you don't quite fully understand, does Jesus accept that? The answer is yes. Because at the same time that he is powerful and glorious in his position, in his disposition, in his person, he is humble and meek and gentle and willing and waiting to welcome you. You see, when we look at the position of Jesus and the person of Jesus, I think often we, for whatever reason, can't combine the two. Right? Because his position is intimidating. It's awe-inspiring, it's fearful, it's wondrous, right? Like if he's the king of kings and the lord of lords, that means that everyone, including all other kings and all other lords, owe him allegiance. That's awe-inspiring. But his position, brothers and sisters, is wielded by his person, which is humble, which is meek, which is unassuming, which is peaceful. And here's ultimately what I hope that we would arrive at from this. When we look at the fact that this kingdom of God, this kingdom of God that we must repent and believe in the gospel in order to come into, right? 
that we would find comfort in the fact that this kingdom is established by a humble king. That those two words, although they seem to be odd bedfellows, and although we have never seen them together in any other king that has walked this planet, that they do come together perfectly and most truly in this man, Jesus Christ. So here's what I would, I would have us to do very simply. Not a lot of application this week. But if you're, if you're a believer in the room, my, my hope is this. My hope is that the position of Jesus would lead us to greater obedience. That it would lead us to a greater sense of worship for Jesus. That we would recognize that he deserves our allegiance. But that as we look at his person, we would know that we're safe, that he's been humble and gentle to us, that he's kind, that he's merciful, that he's come to us in flesh, that he's subjected himself even to death on our behalf, that he's come humbly and lived what we've lived because he is our empathetic high priest, that he understands. And if you're not a Christian in the room, man, I I hope that that this just kind of messes with your worldview about God because I think a lot of a lot of the problems that, that people have with God are that they can't reconcile those two things being true. So it's either, it's either he's weak and unable to do what he says he can do, and he just essentially gets taken advantage of. Broken people can come to him and just abuse the forgiveness that supposedly he gives. Right? Or He's sort of this cosmic killjoy over here that demands allegiance that is just as unfettered and self-important as any other king that we've seen. That he's some kind of dictator that if you don't, like, it, that, it, that that's it, right? It, it, and it's one or the other, right? You either view him as one or the other, and because he's one of those two, he's not worthy of your worship. Because either like Stephen, <laughs> Stephen Fry, he's either so crazy and so inane that he, even if he is that, I don't want to worship him. Or he's weak, and so I don't, why would I worship someone who's, who I can best? When the, when the reality is that he shares those attributes and that he wields them in ways that are totally and completely different from the way you think he does. That in wielding his position... He came and dwelt among us. That even though he was king of kings and lord of lords, he saw fit to ride in on the colt of a donkey. That he saw fit to walk the Via Dolorosa up to Golgotha to the cross. For you, for me. That that's what he did with his kingship, with his lordship. That that's what he did with his messianess. That that's what he did with his ability and sovereignty over all things that he chose to walk in our place. And that that's who the king of Christianity is. That is who the God of Christianity is for you, to you. And so if you've thought of God in any other way or any different way, I would, I would tell you that that's untrue. And that here in Jesus we see, him, we see him perfectly as he is, as the king, but as a humble king. And my hope is that all of us together would be comforted Knowing, right, that, that as, as humble, 
he is humble and gentle enough to do what we know he will do on Good Friday. And that he's also powerful enough to do what we know he will do on Easter Sunday. That Easter is coming. Easter is coming. Let's pray.